and welcome to the Product Science Podcast, where we're helping startup founders and product leaders build high-growth products, teams, and companies through real conversations with people who have tried it and aren't afraid to share lessons learned from their failures along the way. I'm your host, Holly Hester Riley, founder and CEO of H2R Product Science. All right. Well, thank you so much, Michelle, for joining me. Um, so for our listeners who may not have heard of you before, can you tell us a little bit about your background and what you do today? Sure, sure. So my name is Michelle Feaster. Um, I'm the founder and CEO of an enterprise SaaS startup called UserMind. Uh, so first time founder, first time CEO, uh, been at this for five years, but I've uh, pretty much spent about 20 years, most of my adult life in um, enterprise software very short stint in pre-sales and the majority of that time in product management and product marketing. So I am very much a product founder um, and, uh, you know, super excited about being able to kind of build products from scratch that delay customers. Yeah. Awesome. Um, So I think it's uh, really fun to talk to people who've actually been doing product and working in software for, um, you know, 20 years because a lot of our listeners and a lot of people in the industry are um, so much newer to it. So take us back a little bit. How did you first get involved in software and what was it like back then? Oh, yeah. So uh, I'm a college dropout. I was uh, working at gas stations, if you can believe it. That's a whole other story for another day. Uh, <laughs> this is the boom. This is kind of 98, you know, when there weren't enough tech people. And I just got super lucky. My uh, partner was prospecting. She found a job, you know, job offering on the web uh, called me up at work and said, you have to apply for this. And it was a, it was a, a pre-sales role, but it was at a company called Compuware, which if you're familiar with those guys, they were a billion dollar mainframe company uh, and they were trying to transition into client server. And they had this really interesting program called the professional development program. And so they would fly you to Michigan for a whole summer or for three or four months, train you how to code, you know, how to present, um, you know, in SQL. And I remember learning, you know, C and, kind of crazy. Um, and then they, they kind of release you into this indentured servitude where you have to stay for 18 months at a kind of reduced salary to pay them back for their investment. Um, and they were doing that to basically produce both consultants and pre-sales folks. And so I was very blessed. I was given the opportunity to do both. You know, I knew I really enjoyed um, kind of interacting with customers and I like different problems. So I felt like pre-sales would be a better fit for me. Um, and, you know, went back to New England and that's kind of when my whole tech career started. So kind of an unusual entry point, no degree, you know, no computer science background, no, no reason I should have ended up in tech other than, you know, I got lucky in the right time at the right place. Um, and I tell people like, you know, my life has had pivots and that was for sure one of them. And I've been in tech ever since. So that was Gosh, that was my mid twenties. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like there's probably going to be more stories like that coming out these days because, um, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of uh, people are trying to switch over from different areas, and companies are having a hard time finding enough trained talent. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, and you know, and then it was interesting. I so I was in pre-sales there when I joined uh, CompuWare. That they were probably fifth in the market. I was given a product line that was in the testing space and just got lucky. Um, I started taking deals. So they were fifth in the market, CompuWare was, and I started taking deals from the number one player, uh, which at the time was a company called Mercury Interactive. Um, and so maybe after six months, I'd been in working for CompuWare, my phone started ringing. Mercury sent headhunters after me. 
Um, and I, you know, first I didn't return the phone calls, but kind of as I got to the end of my tenure at CompuWare, it was pretty clear to me that that wasn't a good culture fit. You know, I don't know how much you, if you ever even heard of them, but they were very suit and tie, very conservative, um, you know, extremely hierarchical. Uh, and I just, I've never really done well in those environments. I think I do best where there's low rules and high customer focus. And so, you know, I picked up the phone one day, took the call from a recruiter, went and met the Mercury guys uh, and felt like I'd found my home. So I, I actually, I left CompuWare and joined Mercury and I stayed at Mercury for almost eight years, which is kind of crazy. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Eight years is a long time in the software world. Um, right? right? Yeah, yeah. very much. Yeah. Um, so what, I'm curious what made it feel like your home there? What was it like? Well, you know, it's funny when I interviewed, so I interviewed the reps and I, I met the team. Um, it was such a customer focused culture. Um, so number one, the products worked like that's an amazing to go for those people who have not been in tech very long. You know, it's uh, a lot of times the hype is far ahead of what a software app can actually do. Um, and the magic that's created when products really work and deliver reliably is pretty amazing. So, you know, first thing, you know, they were very well known and loved by customers because the products worked. Um, but the culture was really functional. It was a very, you know, kind of as the company grew, it maintained its focus outside the company. And I think that's a hallmark of successful software organizations is this relentless focus on the customer and their success. Um, and I was really drawn to that. Uh, and I'll never forget, I joined the first day I, I was there, I walk in and my computer's on the desk and my phone's there and like everything I need to get productive. And I thought, you know, this is where I want to be. You know, I want to be in a place surrounded by ultra competent people, you know, super focused on helping me be effective and helping customers be successful. So right culture, right product, uh, you know, and, and of course, eight years later, and I, and I probably wouldn't have left. I mean, I only, you know, obviously we got acquired at the end by HP. So, you know, the, the company ceased to exist as I knew it, but um, it was an incredible place to be. Mm -hmm. So um, what are some of the things that they did to keep the focus on the customer, especially it sounds like it was probably a, an eight years of change and growth. Um, <laughs> what, did, what did they do along the way to make sure people were still focused and aligned and making it happen for the end user? Yeah, it's interesting. So, you know, I have two lenses on that one. Obviously, in my time, I spent, I guess, three or four years, half my time there in pre-sales in the field. And during the time I was there, um, you know, many, many sales organizations go through this process of stratifying. So when I started, basically, I covered a zip code and any deals in that zip code with like my rep owned. And by the end, I was running what we called strategic accounts, which were GE and Fidelity, kind of the biggest accounts in the region. Um, and, and as we shifted to that more strategic account relationship, the role of a pre-sales person shifted quite dramatically. And so instead of POCing, you know, a software product for a 70K deal, I was talking to Fidelity about their three-year roadmap for quality. And, and so I got very involved with the product organization. And I, and I think, you know, that was kind of the first way is I think the sales organization felt very empowered to connect the customer and the product organization, even at scale, you know, we were at that point 500 or a thousand people. Um, and so kind of my first interaction with this customer centric culture was pulling people from corporate engineers and product people out to the customers to kind of partner on this larger vision. Um, actually one of which turned into M&A. So I was very vocally uh, behind uh, an acquisition of a company that Mercury did. We acquired a company called Quintana. 
So I think there was just this really a strong megaphone between what the sellers were hearing from customers and products and engineering. Uh, and, and Mercury really responded to that, whether it was by adjusting the roadmap or buying companies. So that was kind of my first exposure to how to be customer centric, right, is to relentlessly just talk to your customers. And then I ended up joining the product organization. And then that was very interesting to me because that was the first time I saw for example, how powerful the data from a call center could be. So we, you know, when I, my very first product gig, I, I took over a business. It was a product called Loadrunner. And at the time it was already the market leader and it was 300 million in revenue. Uh, very big business, relatively speaking. Um, and there was a ton of existing customers. And so for the first time, I actually learned how not just to talk to customers in a sales cycle, but I would meet with the call center team every couple months and I'd review all the tickets and I was looking for patterns in the tickets. And that was, you know, really fascinating as a way to start to understand where customers saw friction. Um, and then, you know, my favorite, probably my favorite part was uh, kind of when I was in product about six months, I started doing customer visits that were really pure product where I go and like interview people about their work structure, about their reporting structure and their MBOs and where their challenges were um, and that's probably what really, I think, if you, if you did all three of those things and you said, okay, a great software company needs to listen to companies in a sales cycle, you need to listen to what customers are struggling with, and then you just need to go out and interview and talk to them a day in their life because you'll surface so many interesting opportunities for your product that you would never have heard either just in context of selling or, or solving a problem. Um, uh, and so I think like, you know, it's a pretty rare company, I feel like, that takes feedback from all those channels and uses them as an input to thinking about, well, what features should we build and why and kind of how do we think about our roadmap and the big problems we can sell for our customers. Um, so I often tell people I think that product role was like my college education. Uh, yeah. Because it's a blessing, you know, product management is much harder when you don't have customers. It's uh, <laughs> much easier when you have a lot of customers, I think. Yeah. Um, that sounds fantastic. I, I always love the the real visits to their offices and getting to mm -hmm. just understand what their day-to-day -day experience is like. like that mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. the best way to figure out what's going to make a difference. Yeah. Well, and like, I mean, it's funny for me, it was a huge aha. So this is you know, dating myself, right? Loadrunner was a client server application. You would download it onto your desktop. It was sold perpetually, right? So this is before SaaS. Mm -hmm. really before like web-based applications become the norm. But I went and I interviewed, I don't know, 10 or 20 of our big customers. And it was very interesting. What I heard was load testing was quite often a, a full-time job, meaning that person was a performance tester, but they might live in one business unit, but be doing load testing part-time for lots of different teams. And so I had, we had this huge aha about the fact that while load testing is very strategic, it's not a thing you do every day. You kind of do it on a time-based, you know, as you're doing a rollout of a new version, you do a lot of load testing. And so it became really clear that it was a right function for being in a center of excellence and operating as a shared service. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of what came out of those visits wasn't really just uh, features. It was, you know, we kind of put our whole weight as a company behind testing centers of excellence and helping companies think differently about how do you how do you create a shared service of some of these testing skill sets where you know performance testing is quite a deep skill set, um, but it you know you don't necessarily have to do it every day for every application. And so I think 
you know, we turned a lot of what we learned in the thought leadership that we shared back to our customers. It also, we, we, we built a whole new version of Load Runner that was web-based that was designed to work in a shared environment with a scheduler and so forth. But man, it was so eye-opening. You can have a pro- product as successful as something like Load Runner, where you have 70% market share and where you have thousands of happy customers. And yet literally, if you just dig a little deeper, there's just a massive opportunity to kind of lead customers to the next level in terms of thought leadership and organizational approach. Um, so it was honestly, it was some of the best product work, not, maybe not that I've ever done, but it was just an incredible opportunity to um, really learn what product is. Mm-hmm. And did you have um, product mentors that you were working with at the time that you learned from? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So uh, I mean, I would, the answer to that is yes and no. I mean, the very first thing I did was I asked kind of the people who I respected in that organization what to read. Uh, and so they all said, you know, read Crossing the Chasm and read Influence. And, and so I think I had good, great conceptual mentors, these like incredible books and in technology about how ideas cross the chasm and, you know, how people buy. And, and, um, and so that was kind of one really amazing gift. I'm really glad people kind of took the time to give me a list of 10 or 12 of these iconic books to read. Um, I went to a pragmatic marketing course. So I'm a huge fan of pragmatic. I think, you know, I didn't really know what product management was. It's kind of funny at the time, you know, the, the output from a PM was an MRD. This is like when waterfall is the approach and the releases were a year. Um, but so pragmatic was fundamental to my thinking. I didn't know what my job was. So that was fundamental to like, your job is to collect all this data and write a doc that, that, that can steer engineering all the way from market strategy, all the way down to like specific product asks that can be turned into a PRD. Um, And so I think Pragmatic gave me a super conceptual understanding. Um, But I don't know that I had, you know, I mean, I had a great boss at the time, but to be honest, I was given almost complete freedom. It was pretty insane. And, uh, and so I don't, you know, I don't really, there wasn't a lot of like me going to other product people and reviewing my work. Um, it just was so clear. Like when I did research, the evidence around this shared service opportunity was so big. The, um, I don't want to bore you with a lot of the uh, other kind of insights. Maybe the other big one was we, we basically saw two personas in our performance testing business, these hardcore devs who were, you know, in a shared service model and really technical. And then we had these other people who were kind of business analysts who weren't technical. And so we had, we, we built personas and we called it build for Christine, which was this non-technical woman that I met. And so uh, I think, um, so I don't know that I had, you know, particular mentors beyond the books and the basic training, but I feel like we had so many amazing customers that we could go and basically create a universe of ideas and really test our hypotheses against their feedback. Um, and the engineering team was amazing, right? I mean, they were just such great partners in that process. They were so excited to be kind of talking about a multi-year change. Um, so, you know, I, I, but what a gift. I mean, talk about an incredible opportunity as your first product role. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I think in many cases, the, the opportunity to start and to learn the things and to get the access to the customers, um, you know, can make a big difference. But then I also think about how you said that you were able to dive a layer deeper and see this opportunity beneath what was already successful. And I think Mm -hmm. that's something that a lot of people that I talk to 
sometimes struggle with. You know, they get caught on sort of that surface level and they're making the the tweaks that get them 5% here and 5% there. And, um, and they're not always looking for that deeper opportunity that will take them another step change. Yeah, it's funny. When I interview product people, one of the things I look for is uh, how do they, like when a customer comes to you and says, I want this feature, I think a... Um, I wouldn't have a bad or average product manager builds the feature the customer asks for. Mm -hmm. But great PMs, really great product people, um, ask the customer why. What problem are you trying to solve? So, like, take down the requirements, take down the, the ask as they describe it. That's fair, right? You're taking their time. But my delight was always asking, well, what problem are you trying to solve? Because quite frequently what I would find is, is a couple things. One is the problem they're trying to solve is a, is a repeatable problem that many customers have. But the solution they've invented, so the feature they're asking for is a solution that they've thought up in their mind the problem. And so the risk of product management is you build a bunch of these one-off features, but you never solve the real problem because you never understood it. So to me, when I would train young PMs, one of the secrets to me is teaching people that your job is to get to the underlying why uh, of the what they're bringing you. And, um, and, and, and you're, I, I say that we're detectives and we collect problems. And, and then, then what we do is we look at like how repeatable are those problems. Uh, if the problem is broadly repeatable, then I would go to my engineering team and say, look, all these customers, as an example, someone might come to you and say, hey, I want this custom report. And every customer wants 50 different customer reports. But if you actually ask like why they need them, it's because they have a report to give to their boss every month that ties their testing work back to their KPIs. And actually that problem is quite common. And so then you can build not one custom report, but some kind of a KPI center where you can give a bunch of, maybe a couple more features all added up together that solves all 50 problems for these 50 customers as opposed to these 50 individual features. So to me, that's a central skill of product management is not just collecting feature requests, but digging one level deeper into the patterns of problems. And then of course, the financial opportunity of solving those problems. You know, is there enough benefit that you could introduce a whole new product or you know, have you found problems that are like monetizable or standalone? Maybe there's a whole new product there. Um, but I, I, I think it's a central skill to being a great product person and one that I don't know that we're really, that we talk about a lot or people are taught. Yeah. I, uh, I've actually found that the more people I talk to across different stages of company and different, you know, levels of maturity or experience in the tech industry, um, I keep finding time and again that people are still at that early stage of even understanding what product management is. Each of us is going through the experience and learning more and more and thinking, oh, everybody knows more now, right? But there's so many new people every year and mm -hmm. lots of people are not so clear. Mm -hmm. So um, one of the things that I'd love to hear more about is your path since then. I think, um, mm -hmm. you know, so you've had some incredible opportunities and you made some uh, a great impact and then they got bought. And mm -hmm. then what happened? <laughs> uh <laughs> You know, it's interesting. So I, I remember crying. I was pat I was on vacation on Lake Tahoe, and I heard about the acquisition, and I did actually cry. You know, HP Software, where all good software goes to die. Uh, but you know, it turned out to be like one of the next great chapters of my life. Um, so I, I, I was uh, after the acquisition closed. I was in Israel uh, with my engineering team, actually working on some roadmap stuff. And my boss called me up and said, "Hey, you know, there's this other business HP has." Uh, this data center automation business, and this is dating myself again. This is when virtualization is like the hottest technology in operations. 
Uh, it's kind of before DevOps becomes broadly a concept. And so, you know, virtualization was introducing this explosion in complexity in operations and, and managing operations, which was really fueling the rise of a whole new set of software, you know, market category around automating uh, data center operations. So HP had uh, done a couple of acquisitions of companies and was trying to play in that space and really had been woefully unsuccessful. I think they were maybe sixth in the market. Uh, and, and my boss said, hey, you know, kind of, you're my glass breaker. Do you want to go see if you can figure this out? Um, one, it's a real pain point. Uh, the field is kind of salespeople are kind of screaming about it. But two, if you solve it, it you know, it's, it's a problem that has a lot of executive focus. So it'd probably be good for your career if you um, can, you know, make a positive impact. And I remember I said no initially, and then I, you know, went to sleep and I said, well, I'm just scared that I don't know the space. Because, you know, my, my leg up in testing was having come from pre-sales. I knew the customers pretty intimately. And so I thought, well, I better, I want to go see if I can do product uh, product management in a company, in a role where I didn't use the software, where I can, where I'm really just a pure product person. So I took the gig. Um, and literally, I remember two weeks in, I presented to the leaders at HP Software and said, you know, Number one, we're fifth in the market. We've invested a ton of money. Um, and guess what? The market's already consolidated. So there's three vendors. You know, this time it was Opsware, Blade Logic, and IBM, all of whom have 80% market share. Um, you know, we're not going to like innovate our HP's not an innovation company. We're not going to innovate our way to first in the market. The market's already chosen the top three vendors. So if we think this market is strategic and we have to be in it, we should just go buy number one or number two. Um, and if we don't think it's strategic, we should just shut the business down because, because we're wasting money in a, in a, in like we're burning money and we're never going to actually move the needle to, to be where we want to be. Um, and so that sparked a whole set of conversations that culminated in the acquisition of a software company called Opsware, uh, which was uh, for $1.6 billion, which is kind of crazy to think about. And that company was founded by men who've become very famous uh, Mark Andreessen was already famous, right? He was the founder of Netscape, inventor of the browser, Mosaic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course, Ben Horowitz is now famous. He, you know, he's written the book, Hard Thing About Hard Things, and they built a mm-hmm. really famous VC firm. Uh, but literally, I and mean, that was my next big life change. So we uh, acquire Opsware, and um, Ben Horowitz becomes my boss. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, I think, you know, generally speaking, in big companies, you're, you you know, I expected that they would like rotate me off into some special projects. For anyone who's worked in a big company, you know what special projects mean. It's like a holding place. Yeah. But I thought my work is done, right? I've mean, yeah. acquired this whole company. They have a product team, they have an engineering team. Like Ben's taking over all the software. He's going to have his people run his business. Um, and of course, Ben, if you've read his book, he writes about this management technique called Freaky Friday, where he rotates people. And I met him and he said, I want you to run my, my business for me, working for me. Um, and so I took over the product function for the Opsware business, uh, kind of crazy, working for him. Uh, and I led the integration and where Jason Rosenthal was my partner, by the way. Um, and, and that, you know, completely changed my life. I mean, literally not only was it an incredible experience to integrate two companies, right. Where you touch everything, pricing, mm-hmm. Comp, licensing. I mean, I learned so much that has, you know, served me well in my later, you know, building companies uh, from scratch kind of part of my career. Mm-hmm. Uh, but literally, Ben's become the great mentor of my life. I mean, you know, he, I remember I'd worked for him for six or nine months and he was like, why aren't you in startups? Like, why are you a founder? What are you doing in big companies? Um, and so, 
it both changed my life because it um, it gave me this incredible opportunity to manage and scale. I mean, I had a my direct team was like 60 product people, which is just never, you know, products on a scale function. He was the best boss and mentor of my life. I got this incredible once in a lifetime opportunity to both lead an acquisition and integrate these two companies. Um, and so, you know, while it started off on super sad join HP, ultimately, I mean, the entire course of my life changed in that um, kind of 18 month window. Um, and so, you know, as is public now, he obviously left and then founded uh, Andreessen Horowitz. Uh, and I remember calling him. It wasn't public yet that he and Mark uh, were founding Andreessen, uh, which is now one of the top five Silicon Valley VC firms. But mm-hmm. I called him up and said, hey, man, like, I got to get out of here. I can't. There's no way I can stay at HP. And so I ended up going to one of their first investments, which was a company called Aptio. Mm-hmm. I was 2017. I was their head of product. Uh, and that was my first chance to really go build a company from scratch. Uh, and that turned out to be an incredible chapter of my life. I mean, those guys have since gone public. Actually, a couple of weeks ago, they just got picked up by private equity. Uh, but I mean, I, I was there from employee 17 to like 600. Uh, and so talk about what an incredible, that, I always tell people that's yeah. my, you know, if, uh, if Mercury was my, was my college degree, you know, Aptio was my MBA. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that had to have been an incredible ride. Yeah, crazy. And you know, and by the way, that was the first time I managed a SaaS product. So mm-hmm. up until then, you know, now it seems obvious that all products are SaaS. But you know, now I'm, let's see, I'm dating myself. Let's see. So this is you know, ten years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was clear that all new companies were going to be SaaS, but you know, they hadn't up till then been SaaS. So yeah. That was, that was a crazy experience. Like all the things we know now about SaaS, that it's obvious that you need to like track usage data and even thinking, even all the tooling around AWS and how you build SaaS applications that didn't exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, so not only was it me learning how to, how is product management different? What, one, when you have no customers, I mean, I joined when they had 15 customers Two, how is it different in a world where you're selling a subscription versus a perpetual license and churn is, an issue in a way it never was or mm-hmm. was not, you know, so, so important. Uh, and then, you know, obviously how do you, how do you basically build the whole company, not just the product? So that was, that was an incredible life experience along every one of those dimensions. Uh, you know, yeah. Yeah. So um, that one is really fascinating to me. And I, I'd like to hear a little bit more about some of the pieces. One of the ones that, there's so many things we could pick up on in there, but um, I think one of the things that I'm interested in is is the building of the team that built the product. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you were if you were person 17 and then you're there through hundreds of people, mm-hmm. um, what did what did building out that team look like, and how did you how did you even identify when it was time to add people to it? Because a lot of people struggle with like holding on for a long time when they're in this growth environment. Yeah, interesting. Um, well. You know, it's interesting. So I, I think product is, uh, by definition, not a scale function, which means that, you know, when, when the revenue grows, you know, engineering will become a giant team, marketing will become a giant team, sales will become a giant team. In relative terms, product will never be a big team. Even, you know, you have to get to like the scale of Amazon or Microsoft until you're in the hundreds of product people. So the law to be a product is uh, you, you only hire 10Xers because the contribution of every single one of those people has to be so great. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, I was the only PM uh, for the first 
probably 18 months. Uh, and actually my first hires were on the product marketing side. Mm-hmm. So I was more initially, I ran both product management and product marketing, which I recognize uh, is a little unusual, but I think it's incredibly um, powerful if you, if you can do it well. Um, because in, in, in enterprise particularly, the product is important, but how you sell is almost a product. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so in enterprise companies, I think product marketing is almost as important a discipline. So, so actually initially, my hires were on the product marketing side. It was very much around sales enablement and refining what we call the plays, which is the solutions. What are we selling to whom in a repeatable fashion? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think only after, you know, let's say two years in, we started to scale the product organization um, you know, I don't even remember now, but when I left, it was probably still small. I don't know, 12 people or 10 people. Um, and in, you know, in the Aptio go-to-market, we had different applications on the platform. So we kind of ended up with PMs who owned different applications and had, you know, span of control or like the GM of benchmarking or the GM of planning. Um, and so, you know, kind of one piece of it was, you know, you can only really hire, you need to hire great people because innovation has to happen at all levels. Mm-hmm. And then once you've hired a couple of great people, how do you organize them such that they have enough autonomy, right? Because the, yeah. you don't want to have to like triage across backlogs. So there are some compromises, I think, in the product team you make where the work structure is on the one hand limited by like the talent pool and on the other hand you have to align them to engineering organizations so they're maximally autonomous and then i think your role as a leader shifts from product work to what i call portfolio work which is really ensuring that the team is aligned around the right overall priorities and i call it the resource pie that the that the way that the overall engineering investment is being spent is aligned to the overall company priority because that's the challenge is you want to give individual PMs autonomy such that they have a dedicated team of devs where they can drive that and the team can work together and make impact. But on the flip side, you need to retain control over the strategy and ensure that the sum of the resources are being spent to maximum impact in the company. Um, And so that's where I think the VP of products role shifts from product work to portfolio management and, and prioritization. I don't know if that those words are, clear or not clear if we should talk more about them, but that was a very interesting uh, evolution over time. Yeah. Um, so I think, uh, you know, some of our, some of our listeners will recognize those words, but maybe some of them will be more aspiring. So mm-hmm. tell us a little more about maybe if you could give a story about uh, portfolio management and how, how you might align the resources um, to fit with the strategy. Uh, so I would say a couple things. One, um, so portfolio management is about making sure that the sum of the features is greater than their parts in my mind. Um, and when I think about the portfolio, uh, I had a couple of quadrants that I would articulate the strategy and the company to the company around. So one was there are features that are all about the market, innovation, competition, winning deals. Um, and so these might be sales features or they might be like, you know, technology is changing, so we need a gadget for social. Um, But these are, this is the innovation kind of bucket slash sales compete bucket. There's the, there's the, hey, I need features, uh, what I call time to value features, which is uh, I need to deliver more work in our services organization faster um, or for customers. And it's all about getting the customer to value as fast as possible with the product. Then there's uh, what I call keep the lights on features, which are features that are basically a bunch of paper cuts. You know, it's the customer calling in to support and being like, hey, this UI thing's not intuitive. 
Um, and by the way, if you don't invest in that over time, you get a lot of, you know, that can lead to churn. You get a lot of, you know, very unhappy customers. Um, and then there's platform investment. This is investment that, you know, over, like, you just have to keep investing in the core platform and a SaaS application, whether it's, you know, for scale reasons, you need to invest to, you know, punch fast some performance issues or it's security. But there's feature investments that are really about platform viability that may yield no obvious benefit to the customer or the sales organization, but are critical. And so I always would, at any given quarter or year, I would be looking at, like, where does the preponderance of the investment need to be? So for getting the features, at the strategy level, we need to win new deals and revenue. We need to make deliver as fast as possible with lowest cost. We need to keep our existing customers happy and the platform needs to work. That's kind of my four buckets. And the four buckets are probably different for every company, but that was how I thought about Aptio's business specifically. Um, and so I would look at and bubble up, you know, the percentage of investments going to each of those things. And, and, and when I would communicate to my boss or the board or my peers, we would be talking about that because they didn't always understand the various features, but they do agree that like paper cuts matter. And if we don't invest some amount, um, you know, they don't like it. You know, most sales organizations, and even customers really hate it when there's big platform investments, but they kind of have to be done. And if you don't talk about them, you'll end up with a lot of debt. So when I say portfolio management, and, and by the way, if you don't innovate, you, the company could die. Or if you don't deal with competitive features, there might be no business. So there's no, there's no fixed pie. Like the, the, the percentages that should go in any one area are very dependent on the state of the company. You know, if your architecture is old and like it's not, it's, you know, like, like if you're Twitter with that Ruby architecture, you know, at the point in time where they had to migrate off it, your resource pie might be 99% of people are on platform because the company's dead if it doesn't happen. Um, uh, or if yep. there's, you know, giant mega shift, like, you know, your product that is built for the web and mobile's coming along, maybe you need to like life or death for the company to build a whole new mobile app. Mm -hmm. So there's no fixed percentage, but it's a way to kind of help people in the leadership team or the board who, and yourself get out of the feature myopia and get into the, like, what are the risks? Where are the risks to the company? strategically, where do we need to be investing? And then really, if we're honest with ourselves and we look at where our, where our actual engineers right now coding, is the actual work of the engineers aligned to the strategy in our head? Um, and so it eliminates this, like a lot of friction, I think, organizationally, but because it, it helps to kind of create this language where people in the company can orient around the strategy and which investments we're making and why. Yeah. And, and by the way, particularly in product, I think we have the onus is on the product organization to articulate the why, because mm -hmm. no one knows if we're right in product for 18 months like or six months. It takes us a while to build features. It takes a while for customers to adopt them. And by the way, people won't know whether your innovation was right, maybe for two years till that thing builds revenue. So um Anyway, I, I that that was I used that within my team. I used it to uh, move engineering resources around. I used it to communicate to the leadership, uh, to the board, um, and so it's really about portfolio management. To me, is ensuring that the maximum impact from the current resources you have is really that the work is aligned to the best strategy of the company currently. And in my observation, a lot of companies fall down there. Like yeah. people really good at managing the Jira backlog, but they're not really good at managing the strategy.
one of the things I really love about the way you talk about it is how often you use the word invest. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that when I, especially when I talk to people who are earlier career or, um, you know, maybe aspiring leaders who are, have only been in it for a few years, um, they, they don't talk as much about how everything is an investment towards the strategy or towards the, the growth. And, um, and I really like that, that perspective. I, I look, I think fun and boil it all down. A PM's job is to get the single most company impact out of the resources they have. And, mm-hmm. and that, when I when and like that goes back to prioritization. So like our job is to find problems or market opportunities, to design solutions to those market opportunities, and then by the way, ensure that the resources we have are going to get maximum bang for the buck. And a lot of that is ruthless prioritization. Yeah. Uh, so when I hire PMs, those are the skills I'm looking for. Um, and then in leaders, I'm looking for that ability to manage the portfolio, to constantly ask, are we really in, you know, directing the resources at the most important problems that are going to have the biggest business impact? Yeah. yeah. What do you see as the role of communication and how, how have um, the, the teams you've worked with communicated what they were doing and why they were doing it uh, with people outside of the product team and inside their team across yeah. their units? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So um, this is a hard one. So I think, I think uh, communication is essential. So I often say PM is a, is a job of influence. Uh, you owe no resources directly, and yet you're accountable to make the company successful. So uh, and influence jobs are 100% about communication. Um, and, I, and I will say that while I consider myself a visionary, I don't think I am. I've always been the best at that part of the PM role. So it's definitely been you know, a thing I haven't always uh, done perfectly. Um, but look, I think... Um, Number one, there's input. So there's, you know, communication is taking input. I think it's very important that all the functions feel like they're being heard. So a product team has to have yeah. very good things of like, how do you take feedback from customers? How do you take feedback from sales and pre-sales? How do you take feedback from services? How do you take feedback from your own engineering organization about what they think is important? Um, and I think whether or not we act on every single piece of feedback, it's very important that every function feel like they have a communication channel into the PM organization. Um, you know, exactly how you do it, uh, it's some mix of like a process. We have JIRA and you can file a ticket and it's some mix of a structured feedback session so that people can actually give you color around which things matter. Um, I'm really big on ranking and voting exercises. So like, you know, at UserMind, for example, my pre-sales organization gives product feedback, and we ask them to um, stack rank what they want and to kind of present. Uh, each of the pre-sales guys can all submit tickets, but what what we want at the end is the whole team speaking about a prioritized list and like here are their top ten things and why. Uh, because you know you can't you need to, you need to make sure you're working on the most impactful things that will help them. So. Uh, and I don't think you can do that just with JIRA. So at least in my experience, you need some kind of a process that stores all the data. And then you need a human process, a quarterly business review where each of these functions provide structured feedback to the product team. That's kind of one important piece. The other important piece about communication is then explaining the trade-offs and explaining why we're making the decisions that we're making. Um, and that is some combination of the roadmap, right? The roadmap is the representation of all up the product team's plan. Um, but I think how you deliver that to each, each function is kind of done differently. So, um, you know, you probably do a product roadmap session in your, you know, 
uh, kickoff or your quarterly business review for the for the uh, sales organization, but to some extent, you're constantly negotiating roadmap with engineering. And so, you know, I think you just need a similar structure and cadence. And it's not just the what. What I find is the why is really important. Like everybody needs to know what we're doing, but why. That's why the resource pie to me is such an important tool for communicating out because, you know, nobody cares about the list of like 17 or, you know, 50 or 100 little little paper cuts we're fixing. But I think everybody can get behind the fact that, hey, we need to put 15% of the pie on just making sure our customers stay happy. Uh, and, and like, do we really need to discuss every single one of those features? No, uh, but just everybody should know that we are carving out a set of people who are going to go do that. So I, I used both the roadmap and the resource pie to articulate the marriage of the what and why, because you, what you're really trying to create in, in your outward communication is trust. We're listening. We, we understand the market. We're, we obviously are making trade-offs. We can't do everything. And here's why we're doing the set of things we're doing. Um, and so I think the good product people just say what they're doing. The great product people sell you on the what by giving you the why around those decisions. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, you hit a lot of high points on uh, communication and, um, you know, the what, the why. <clears throat> um, so... I'm thinking about what other elements do um, our listeners want to hear about. Um, I think uh, one thing that would be interesting to hear your perspective on is um, how people in your organization, you know, here uh, at UserMind or at Aptio, um, how do they um, make decisions with evidence? And is there um, sort of cohesive practices? Is it kind of each person is empowered to do it the way they like? Um, what does that look like? Okay, yeah. So I would say um, I think every every decision needs to be evidence-based. I think the what, what constitutes evidence is very phase-dependent in a startup. So when you're, let's take the obvious one. Let's say you're a big startup like Zendesk or your Google or your where you have a lot of customers and you have an existing product and you have a lot of data, mm -hmm. then I think experimentation uh, is like you're one of your go-to skills in PM. You know, you look at consumer product management and a lot of decision-making is driven by experimentation because you have the volume of both people uh, and the scale of the business to permit that. So, and can That's I just uh, ask for a clarification there? In, in that context, when you say experimentation, are you primarily talking about A-B or multivariate tests that are pushed live? Or yeah. Yeah. You look at Twitter, you look at Google, mm -hmm. you know, they don't, they don't, the way they make decisions is evidence-based by like seeing what real users do mm -hmm. and by ideating and prototyping a choice and getting real user data and then building it only if they think it works. Mm-hmm. Now, so, but, but I think your, your style of, of evidence has to, has to be very specific to like what kind of company are you at and what stage are you at. Mm -hmm. Let me give you the opposite end of the spectrum. Your user mind, your Michelle, you have yourself and one co-founder. You don't even have a company. How do you make an evidence-based decision in that case? What constitutes evidence? And so to me, let's say you're founding a company and you have a product hypothesis. Well, the first thing you should do is do a bunch of user interviews and you should do a structured questions and you ask everybody the same questions and you're, you, you have a persona you're going after or a problem you're digging into 
Um, and so you can make a very a good product hypothesis and very evidence-based choices. So if I think about our first prototype that we designed, it came out of about 85 interviews uh, that we did about a day in a life and what problem we wanted to solve. But that's evidence that's not, I mean, how heavyweight is that evidence, right? That's just an interview. So, um, so I think that, uh, and then of course, if you get to the middle stage of being a company like where UserMind is now, we have people using the product who can give us feedback. They can, you know, we have we have user research we can do. We can, you know, we we have you know tickets that people call in. Like so, the nature of the evidence you're using to me is very specific to like what kind of company am I? Where where am I in my stage? And how do I, because look, to me, the reason you want to make an evidence-based decision is back to this investment notion. The most valuable resources in any technology company are engineering resources. If we spend them coding things that are not valuable or that don't move the needle for the company, it's basically waste. So how do we use evidence to help us direct the most valuable resources in the company to work that's the most valuable it can possibly be? Now, on the flip side, I would also tell you that um, I'm not so hung up. I think there's a very important bar for like how much evidence do you need and how much goes too far. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in my opinion, if you have a pattern and the pattern, like in my 80 user interviews, if the pattern is consistent enough in 20, 20 interviews and my market research indicates I'm roughly right, I'm not going to go get another 40 people, you know, like, yep. like there's diminishing return to me. Um, and by the way, likewise, so when we design features here, we definitely get customer feedback, but we don't overthink it. Like we're, we, we need enough to know that it's directionally correct. And we also trust that, that we'll get feedback to iterate on it. So there's also this point to me of like, how do you, what's just enough? How do I get just enough evidence to make the best decision I can make um, without taking too long or like, you know, overanalyzing something? Um, and so I think that's a very important skill is like just enough evidence to make an 80 or 90% right decision. And in a startup, by the way, that's the right methodology. That's by the way, the, maybe the other thing about product management is mm-hmm. your evidence to risk is like what company are you working in? How much risk can be tolerated? And so if you're, you know, deploying a feature that, you know, might impact the security of the platform, probably 80% you know, risk is not good. You have to be 99%. Uh, so there's this also this kind of judgment call you're making about how, how, how right am I and how much risk is there of me being wrong to kind of decide how much evidence is enough evidence. I think when, when do decisions need evidence and what kind of evidence do they need mm-hmm. is, uh, is sort of a key theme um, mm-hmm. that we like to explore. So I think decisions always need evidence. But the only people who can barely get away with no evidence are founders. And even we have to show our, like, our board and justify to investors what we're doing. So I, I, uh, Perhaps it's the skeptic in me, but I would say I also sometimes I see uh, decisions being made with very little evidence inside the enterprise where they're very cushioned. Um, you know, it's going to be a long time before they see the impacts because their company is just already making a billion dollars. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, my point of view is probably very biased by the fact that I've only been in tech companies and high growth companies and now startups for a very long period of time. So yeah, probably that risk reward decision is very different if you're in, you know, 
a giant enterprise where, you know, your decision doesn't have any impact on the company. I've always done product management in companies where I can connect the dots between my decisions and the financial impact to the top line or the bottom line of the company. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that that actually uh, leads me to my next question, which is, it sounds like uh, you've had a lot of amazing experiences and you've had a lot of opportunities to learn and, um, you know, try things with great user bases and work with great engineering teams. Um, what are some of the things that you've learned along the way through um, maybe, uh, maybe learn the hard way, you know, something where, um, you know, you tried something and you felt really strongly about it. And then later you realize, okay, next time I'm going to tell people like not to do that. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, being a CEO and a first time founder, I feel like I've made every mistake in the book and, you know, I can give a couple of them. So one, you know, when we started the company, we, uh, good, good, good practice. My co-founder and I built a little prototype, um, validated with some people. And to be honest, five years later, like the product idea was basically right. The interviews paid off. The product idea was basically right. Mm-hmm. We raised the money and I'll get to my the mistake. We raised the money and we started to hire engineers and, and we kind of made two mistakes that were interrelated. So one, all the early engineers, my co-founder was my technical co-founder that we hired, were really senior and really late in their career. And so we ended up with like six alpha personalities, all of whom we felt they were really right, all of whom had built really big things before, um, and nobody who really wanted to listen to each other. And, and, and to be honest, it probably took me 18 months to two years to clean up the architectural mess that was reflected in that lack of functioning in the early hires. Um, The second thing was, you know, I probably had the data at around three hires that it wasn't working very well, but I felt pressure. The idea was right. The market was right. We had the money. We we should just, you know, why aren't we producing enough code? And the answer was like, well, we need more engineers to produce more code. And what I now know is that's not true. Uh, and, And so if I were to go back in time, like the mistake I made first was, I think you need some leaders and some followers. And so if you're building your early team, you need to have real clarity, like you need two leads or three leads, whatever makes sense for your product, and you need followers, people who do what they say. And I don't mean that do what they say, you know, people who know coding know that a lot of a lot of young engineers really want to work with these senior engineers to learn from them. Yeah. Uh, and, so, and so you need to architect a team that functions and works. And our approach of having these like maybe there was an alternate team of like really senior people that might've worked, but like the most important thing in your first five engineering hires is team cohesion because productivity is direct architecture and productivity are directly an outcome of all those conversations. So um, that was a gigantic mistake. And then the other thing is a gigantic mistake is scaling anything that's not working too fast, which is what I should have done when I saw that I had three or four engineers who weren't producing enough code is say, we're not going to hire any more people until the first batch works, until the process works, until we're reliably delivering features, because scaling a broken thing only makes it worse. It's so much harder to fix something at 20 people than at three people. So those are probably two huge mistakes that I made that were very preventable, um, that if I were founding again, I would take a radically different approach to like my first six months, um, because I think if you lay a good foundation, you know, in the alternate world where you hired six people and they gel and they're kicking ass, man, the amount of velocity you can get then from scaling the team could be huge. Um, so that's for sure 
uh, one of them. You know, I think, uh, you know, the man, the, another huge mistake I made. So I, um, which like the market's fine. Like it's an example of a mistake that would tell you. But when I founded UserMind, so we're we're basically building what's called a journey orchestration platform. So if I was netting out what I heard, I heard from people, hey, look, um, customers are interacting more directly with companies. Everyone's head nods. The companies are adopting tons of new channels and therefore tons of new technology. And so there was this really interesting technology problem that you end up with 20 different you know, systems communicating with the customer, none of which integrate together. So I'm like, wow, that seems like a pretty strategic problem. Uh, and like, you know, why don't Marketo and Salesforce and ServiceNow and Google Analytics and, you know, Hootsuite, why don't they talk to each other? Because, man, you would sell more stuff and the customer would be happier if you could actually connect those systems together. So I thought, wow, that's a really strategic problem to solve. Um, and so I thought, you know, who's the buyer? Uh, I thought, oh, well, marketing and sales really are the ones who care about the customer experience. That's who I'm going to sell to. So I think problem statement, right? Very validated by the market today. Uh, early, early segment, that was right. And then I said, well, I'm going to go look at vendors who uh, won in marketing and sales and see how they did it. And the playbook seemed to be basically the SaaS you know, in digital marketing leaders. Uh, and, um, and and then only then would the enterprise pay attention to the technology. So like Marketo basically won the Valley and then, you know, big enterprise companies started to buy marketing automation. So I thought that's my playbook. I thought my segment is this kind of mid-market segment. Um, and so I launched the company um, and our pipeline went 100%. And by the way, I built my product for that segment and I thought, oh, it's all going to be self-serve. Launched the company and my pipeline went 100% enterprise. Uh, and turns out, right, hindsight's always 20-20, that if you're a high-growth startup, you can kind of muscle your way through these customer problems by, like, hiring more people. But if you're yeah. a giant enterprise, actually, you don't, can't hire more people. And very small percentage increments of customer, you know, improvement have big revenue implications. So it turns out... Although all my suppositions sounded right and still sound right, actually my system, you know, user mind is most valuable to the largest companies in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, we had to like build features we hadn't thought about and we had to, you know, it's a different sales motion and you, you need SOC too. And, and so it, the implications of that wrong decision you know, are very large. Um, and they don't, you know, the good news is if you're a startup, you're designed to iterate through those. So none of those were like, you know, killing the company. I would say that our issues on the engineering side had far more lasting impact than choosing the wrong segment. Mm -hmm. uh, but those are two, two great examples of like very, very big mistakes that I made along the way that you just you have to get back up and keep battling, really. You do. That's, that's how you get past it all, right? Um, awesome. Well, this has been really fun and interesting conversation. Um, is there any, do you have any final thoughts or things that you would want to share with aspiring product leaders or product focused startup founders? Oh, what I want to share. Look, I think, um, one, I do think product is, you know, it's kind of a 10 X function, meaning I think product and engineering are, are, or, and most functions are probably this way, but like my point is, a great product person will literally do things that an average product person can't. Uh, and so I think if I was talking to startup founders, I would say, you know, if you're, if you, if you're a founder who didn't come from product, 
you need to figure out how to recognize that 10Xer because it's like adding another founder to the company. It'll give you so much leverage for the company's success. Um, and you know, you want to go talk to other great product people so you can figure out how to hire that 10Xer. Um, I think for young product people, you know, I would, I would give the same advice I got, which is if you really want to grow in your career in product, you, you should either do one of two things, go work in a very high growth company where if you're really good, you're going to be given bigger and bigger and bigger problems to solve or go, or go work in a big company and jump on the broken business, like my, my move into data center automation. And so, um, you know, those are moves uh, that, um, that I think are very good career advice, especially for product people, because product jobs don't just grow because the headcount grow. You know, you grow because the business shifts. So I think be very intentional about your career. Um, the other thing I'd say is if you're a young product person, go work in a company that does great product management. So I, I would say, um, you know, Microsoft actually has very good product managers. They're, they're, they call them program managers, but it's some really good basic DNA. Mm -hmm. um, I don't, I think Amazon's okay, but not great. Um, and there are probably other brands in the Valley where, you know, go learn from a great product person. It's not like a business where there are these books and you can just go, you know, read 50 books and you pop out as, there's not like a discipline or a degree. Yeah. So quite often what you're seeking out is great product minds to learn from. Um, and I think the more product folks, I mean, obviously go read all the books, go to pragmatic. Uh, but, but, you know, a lot of your career trajectory is going to be shaped by the first couple of bosses and first couple of cultures you join, because those are the skills you're going to learn for the rest of your career. And I think it matters more than in many other jobs or functions. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. We'll definitely um, share this and be excited to see more of where UserMind goes and what you're up to. And it's been great. Thank you. Awesome. Well, happy to do it, Holly. Obviously, you can tell I'm passionate about product. So. You are. Yeah. So it's awesome to hear. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Michelle Feaster as much as I did. If you'd like to follow her online, you can find her on Twitter at Michelle Feaster, M-I-C-H-E-L-F-E-A-S-T-R, or visit her company's website, usermind.com. Enjoying this episode? Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's episode. I also encourage you to visit us at productsciencepodcast.com to sign up for more information and resources from me and our guests. If you love the show, a rating and review would be greatly appreciated. Thank you.